Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone. And uh, welcome back to another exciting Parsha podcast. I am thrilled and delighted to have my friend and colleague, Aviva Lauer, who, in addition to being a master teacher and a great Torah thinker, is also the director of the Pardes Center for Jewish Educators and does a lot of very important things at Pardes. Welcome, Aviva. Thank you so much, Tvi. Glad to be here. Terrific. And I think she's smiling, so maybe she actually is glad to be here. I want to remind everybody that although you will be listening to this farther down the road, we are taping this where right now, currently in Israel, unfortunately, uh, war is still going on. Hostages are still held by Hamas. So we are still struggling and feel very challenged and are looking for inspiration from the Torah that we are learning. And so I am sure that in our comments or things that we share, that the background of what's happening here uh, will come out. And we are, of course, both very hopeful that by the time you are listening to this, that God willing, there will be peace, the hostages will be returned, and life will be in a much different place here and for Jews all over the world. So having said that, Parshat Vayechi, Aviva, you get to finish off Safer Brashit for everybody. I know. I'm excited about that. This is the one thing people are not going to remember from all of Book of Brashit is what you share with them today. Wow. Heavy. But no pressure. Okay. So here we are. Uh, we are at the culmination of really this complicated story of Joseph and his brothers and Yaakov. It's the longest narrative piece, I think, that the Torah has for us and the dynamic of this family and the difficulties. And, and here we are, and this piece of the story is about to close. And uh, Yaakov, Yisrael, is about to also bless his children. And we are preparing now for these closing sages of this family ending up in Mitzrayim with the book of Shmot, the book of Exodus sort of leaning ahead of us. So Aviva, tell us what stood out for you in this story that you'd like to talk about? So there were actually two things that stood out for me. The first one, I don't really have anything to say about it, but I want to just mention it. So that first one is after Yaakov dies and Yosef, etc., go back up to Eretz Canaan and bury him there in Merada Machpelah, in the cave of Machpelah, I'm like thinking, why didn't they just stay there? I mean, Yaakov says to them, you're going to come back. And it's very clear to everybody that at some point they're supposed to go back to Eretz Canaan. And they do at that moment, but then not a word, not a thought, not a discussion, like maybe we should just stay here. They left their children and their animals back in Goshen, back in Mitzrayim in Egypt. Weird. A little strange. Yeah, it's one of the great mysteries there. How come once the famine is over? I mean, Yaakov does have that dream on the way down where God says, uh, I'm going to put you there and I'm going to take you out. But maybe this was the opportunity to be taken out, right? How do you want to interpret that? It's a beautiful question. And the sense that this family has sort of accepted the idea that Mitzrayim is going to be their home until some future time. And maybe they have Avram's tradition of- Breed Bein Thank yeah. you, from the Breed Bein Tarim, right? That they're supposed to be in this foreign land. It's a beautiful For question. For a long time. But yeah, it's just, it's, sometimes we have to take matters in our own hands. And that's why I'm a little bit confused about it, but okay. 
Yeah, and this idea of the fact that Joseph has to ask permission, some people think that he wouldn't have been allowed to leave. I think it's a great question, the sense of where does his family think they are right now in the trajectory of the family and the Jewish people, and are they sort of become passive, like this is just what's going to be, and why don't they push back against their fate a little bit? And Dafka, the groups that are left behind, if I remember correctly, are the same groups that later on Pharaoh says to Moshe, just leave them behind and you all can go, you know, to worship God for three days. It's kind of like a, there's like a pinch there when Paro says that because you can think, wait, they left them of their own accord behind the first time wow. around. He's like saying, you guys have done this before. Don't try to tell me this is a big deal. I, I remember the story. You leave children behind sometimes when you want to do something religious or important because you're going to come back. Right. It raises all really relevant questions today about fate and destiny and how much we're supposed to take into our hands and how much we're supposed to just accept as part of the world that we are in. And I know I'm struggling with that question these days, probably more than uh, I have in the past. Yeah. And uh, maybe that's why that jumped out for you. As yeah, well. but we're not going to talk about that. No, we're not. So uh, we're going to leave it in because it's so interesting and yeah. helpful. And thank you, for, but it's not going to be our focus. So feel free to write in the comments. That's right. You can email us about uh, further conversation. Yes. But the second thing I was thinking about is this very strange episode of Menashe and Ephraim or Ephraim and Menashe, Yosef's children. Yaakov calls Yosef and the children to him as he's on his deathbed or, you know, close to dying. And he wants to claim them as his own sons, as like amongst his own 12. So it would become more than 12. And he blesses them. He wants to bless them. And there's this whole weird situation where instead of putting his hands on their heads as they stand in front of him, with his arms straight, he crosses his arms. So it's like an X in front of him. And he puts his right hand on the head of the younger child, Ephraim. And he puts his left hand on the head of Menashe, who's the older child. And that is opposite and wrong in Yosef's eyes, because the right hand is the dominant hand, the strong hand. And you're supposed to bless the older child, the dominant child, with your right hand. You know, there's so many things about this episode that you're pointing to that I find very strange. I'm curious what you think. Number one, the fact that Yaakov doesn't recognize them. Right. I've always taken that to mean that Yosef's been with Pharaoh in Egypt and Yaakov's been in Goshen and Yosef has not had his kids around Yaakov. They've been leading these two separate lives. Of course, you could say, you know, Yaakov's old, he's blind, he doesn't see. But that's one question, of course, that is really striking. And uh, this other piece, this redoing of the scene of the blessing of the two children and the father who doesn't know who he's blessing necessarily, and that Yosef is still in that mode, right? That the elder son, the elder son, the elder son. Well, he is in the middle of that mode because the first time that happened, it was with Yaakov and Esav, his brother. I mean, it happened on more than one occasion. It even happened at their birth, right? Where Esav is the first to be born, but Yaakov, you know, reaches on. He wants to be the first. So there's this like weird tussling there. And later on with the deal that Yaakov makes with Esav, where he insists that Esav sell his birthright for a pot of pottage. Lentils, Lentils something. Right? right. Right. And then again, within the main scene where Yitzchak is 
really like taken for a ride by Rivka and Yaakov. So that is a situation that's happening. But in the middle is Yosef, who was not the oldest son, and he was favored. And look where that took him. Look where that he ended up because of that. And I don't mean ended up ultimately as the second in command in Egypt. I mean, like his whole crazy life story. What if Yaakov wouldn't have favored Yosef? What if he would have shown equal love and care to all of his sons? Would they have hated him? Would they have been jealous of him, meaning the brothers of Joseph? Would they have thrown him in a pit? Like, no. So Joseph maybe is saying here, like, let's just be normal. Let's not repeat our mistakes. Let's just be a normal family for once. Like the older child, give the older child the bracha they're supposed to get. It's funny, like every time somebody messes with this system, things get flipped around and torn apart, right? Yitzchak instead of Yishmael, and that creates the whole story with Hagar and being sent away and that right. tragedy. And then, like you said, Yaakov and Esav and that whole terrible scene of Yitzchak being taken advantage of because he's blind, if we interpret it that way. And Yaakov choosing Yosef and not Ruvain or Shimon or Levi or Yehuda for that matter, and uh, giving him the special coat. So I feel like what you're saying is Yosef's showing up to his father is like, listen, we have a bad history with this whole playing with the hierarchy. What we need to do is just do what everybody else does. The oldest child gets the prize. That's the way of nature. The law of primogeniture. That is the way of nature, and that is civilization. Dad, let's just go back to that. Just be cool, man. Right. And it, But it happens twice in this story, even. There's two situations here, both the giving the blessing to the younger son and Yaakov saying to Yosef, I'm going to give you a double portion in the land of Canaan. You are going to get double. What? Like, again, just can we not? Given the fact that Yaakov learned these lessons or these results, you know, on his very being, what do you think then is going on here? Why can't he just go with, as you're saying, the expected flow? Yosef brings his sons. He has them all lined up. I feel like this is what my kids are always telling me. Can't you just do what we want you to do, <laughs> right? Why do you have to do it a different way? Right. We, we've set things up. Just do it this way. And I'm always perceived as the term I get is annoying mm. or difficult because I want to do it my way. Why can't I just go with the flow? So in their spirit, I ask you, Aviva, Yosef comes to his father with the grandkids. It's all lined up. A nice, simple blessing ceremony. Right. That's all he wants, Right. Why can't Yaakov go with the plan? Okay, so I've been thinking a lot about the language used at the beginning of Toldot when Yaakov and Esav are born and grow up. And Esav is Ish Sadeh Yodea Tzaid, something like that. That's pretty much it. And Yaakov is called an Ish Tam Yoshev Ohalim. And this word Tam what does that mean? I think that often people think about Tom as in simple, as in nice, as in good, right? Like the four sons, the Tom, like he's the good one. Or even pure, sometimes people will say, right? The right. pure one. Right. And I'm thinking that maybe, possibly, Tom can mean something else. I think, and I know this doesn't come from the same Shoresh, even though it sounds the same. So maybe Rev Hirsch would say that they're connected. He's a little bit atum, which translates in modern Hebrew to, you know, 
dense, maybe? Dense. We would say now, and you as a master educator, not having a high emotional IQ, perhaps. Exactly, is, is exactly what I was going to say. He is not socially, emotionally aware, and he does not have a high EQ, for sure. I mean, I think he's just not aware of how his actions affect others. And he kind of expects other people to take their actions into account and how they affect him, like in the story with the rape of Dina in Vayishlach and how he's like, look what's going to happen. And his sons are like, don't you understand what's going on? Like, be a little bit emotionally aware. And he doesn't say anything. I think maybe that's what he is in an Ishtam sort of way. He's a deal maker. He's a combinator, which is a Hebrew word that I do not know how to translate into English because... It has a little bit of an element of manipulator, but I think it's also just someone who's, if I put it more positively, just sort of looking for the most effective solution, practical solution to a problem. And what you're suggesting, I think, is not necessarily thinking about the emotions that are present behind the problem that's in front of us. Right. So if his name Yaakov, we often say it's because he was holding on to the Akev, to the heel of Esav. Laakov or Laakov has a lot to do with really just butting in line in front of other people, circumventing other people and not thinking about them in order to get what you want. Yaakov, he's somebody who just kind of passes others by to achieve his goals. And maybe that's what's happening. Maybe he just is like really dense. I don't mean dense in a stupid way. I just mean there's an opaqueness there. He's not seeing how his behavior has really messed with his family all these years. She's saying he didn't learn the lesson before with Yosef. And so now he's just continuing forward without really being sensitive to the fact that every time you upset this natural expected order, you could create tremendous tension. That's one read. Yeah. Okay. But you imply there's another read. Yeah. I mean, I don't want anybody to think that we're besmirching Yaakov Avinu. And that is one way I think about him a lot. But there is another way that I think about him, a real other way. And that has something to do with his response to Yosef when Yosef is upset that he has crossed his arms and privileged the younger child over the older child. And his response is, Yadati bini, Yadati. I think this is the only place where somebody repeats Yadati twice in the Tanakh. Oh, I mean, wow. like, it's not one of those cases, like in a bad TV show where they're like, I get you, man. I get you. I don't think it's like that. I don't think it's bad writing because the Torah is actually brilliant writing. I think what he's implying here is that I do see what's going on. I really get it. Like, I get the deeper level, which is why I think it says it twice. It's not just the surface level. See what I'm doing? I'm doing it on purpose because I want to get across this value, which ends up being, I hope, a really Jewish value down the line, that it doesn't matter if you come from the naturally higher group of people. You don't have to be a priest. You don't have to be a rich landowner. You don't have to be a man. You don't have to be white. You are judged on your merit. It's something about the democratization of religion, the democratization of our nation that he is putting forth here. And it happened, like you said, with 
his father Yitzchak and his uncle Yishmael. It happened with him and his brother Esav. He made it happen with his son Yosef and his brothers. And he's making it happen again with his grandchildren, Ephraim and Manasseh. He is saying, you don't have to be the oldest son to have worth in Judaism. Or even to have greater worth. You know, I see this child and he is more worthy and more deserving of this leadership role. And so even though it's going to create tension, I still want to push back against it. Yeah. So here's where I'm going to talk about television again. My husband and I have been binge watching Peaky Blinders these past couple of weeks. Just to clarify, does binge watching mean more than two episodes a night? Yes. Would it reach a level of four episodes? Well, they're an hour long each, so that's a little bit hard. But? On Motzei Shabbat, yes. Okay. Okay. So there are six seasons of six episodes each, and we finished it all. Kola Kavo, did you have like a seum party? Did you do like a special meal to acknowledge the- No, but I, I cried a little. Oh. Um, and we talked about starting from the beginning again. Wow. But, you know- like the Torah, Lahav deal. Okay, this is a firm recommendation for those of you who say we don't offer enough recommendations on this podcast outside of like learning Rashi and Ramban. Here you have, in addition to Rashi and Ramban, Aviva's recommending Peaky Blinders. So why am I talking about this? I'm not going to tell you why I recommend the whole show. It's just beautifully poetic and spectacular. But why am I mentioning it now? Because by rights, it's about a family that they're like a gang of mafia type, you know, right? By rights, the older brother, Arthur Shelby, he's supposed to be the head of the gang. But in the first episode, it becomes very clear that Tommy Shelby is the one who has what it takes to be the head of this family. And what's so cool about it, and this is something I love about it, Arthur very, very quickly gets over any feeling of, no, it was supposed to be me, I'm in charge. He sees that he has amazing qualities that Tommy needs. And he's going to be there with him because there's nobody else who can do what Arthur does. He is the older brother, but he does not need to be the head of the family. And later on, at some point, Tommy says to somebody else who wants to like kick Arthur out of the room when they're having an important conversation, Arthur and I are the same person. My brother and I are the same person. The way they work together is really something. Let's not talk about what they do, okay? Lahab so deal. even though there is hierarchy, that hierarchy does not interfere with their ability to love each other, to be there for each other, and to work towards a shared goal. Exactly. So there is something about a meritocracy, you're saying, that people can buy into in a way that doesn't breed resentment or jealousy because everyone feels sort of valued for what they're bringing to the table. Yes. And they can still recognize some people have more or a certain set of skills that are more helpful or more needed for leadership or for power than somebody else might have. Yeah. If each person is seen for what they have, then everybody will really flourish, I think. You know, it's interesting because you really kind of touched upon it. On the one hand, the Torah does have Kohanim and Levi'im and does have a Melech and ultimately a king right through the house of David. And the Torah even gives a double portion to the firstborn. So there is this strain of these fixed hierarchies. On the other hand, I guess you could argue, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it, we're told that we're supposed to be an entire nation of priests. 
And then I jump ahead to the sages who talk about in Pirkei Avot, right? Keter, Malchut, Keter, Kuna, and Keter, Torah, these three crowns, the crown of kingship, that's reserved for the house of David. Mm -hmm. The, you know, Kuhuna, priests, that's reserved for our Rome. But the most important Keter, right? The Keter of Torah, that's open to everyone to come and take. It's literally come and take it. So there's this built in, maybe you'd argue, tension, this ongoing conversation between maybe the stability that inherited hierarchies offer, right? And on the other hand, this pushback against them and saying, we're gonna lose something if inherited hierarchies dominate the way we think. Yeah, I don't see it as a tension. I see it as a balance. I don't think there's negativity in that need for balance. The kihuna and the malchut, they need to be. And everybody owning and having agency over Torah, that needs to be. And those things can, function side by side. Wow. So, of course, then I have to ask you, as an educator and as a teacher, how does this sense of meritocracy and sort of pushing back against these inherited hierarchies, how has that affected the things that you do and want to do and train others to do? So I think there's an element of meritocracy. There's also an element of everyone will shine in a different way. You just have to uncover and peel and find out what that thing is and allow that person to try and, you know, fail and then do well. Like meritocracy, that word is a little bit hard for me because that's exactly what we're talking about. But it also has this tinge of like the person with a really high IQ. And it's not just about that. We've been talking about an EQ, an emotional quotient as well. And if somebody has an amazing EQ, they can go so far, you know, cultivate that. That's the kind of thing that I really hope the teachers who I'm training to be teachers will pay attention to, to be able to see, to suss out what each child wants to do, loves to do, is able to push themselves to do, is passionate about. That's really important to me. I feel like maybe what you're saying is reflected in this parish also in the blessings for the different tribes, right? In other words, on the one hand, each tribe has its own responsibilities, its own gifts, its own contributions to make. On the other hand, there is this unifying sense. We're all B'nai Yisrael. We're all part of the people of Israel, even though I know that there's always tensions with that, right? There's always this challenge of, on the one hand, buying into some kind of fixed inherited framework. But on the other hand, having the freedom to explore and discover where your talents lie to contribute to that framework. Right. I think today, often, people do not like the fact that there is an inherited framework and they want to forget there ever was an inherited framework. But it's only against the backdrop of that inherited framework that people can find their own way. I think, you know, you have to sort of see what there is first in order to become your own unique self and to just pretend that there is no use for the inherited framework is a little bit, there's folly in it. Yes, yeah, some would argue it works the opposite way. By giving people a framework, people then have the freedom to choose and figure out, actually be more creative. It's like when you don't give students any instruction at all, they can't move. Right. And you tell them, here's the piece of paper I want you to work with, here are the colors I'm offering you, and here are even some fixed guidelines within that you know, create. And I guess you'd say that's how learning Torah works, right? We don't say everything is Torah. Right. We actually have. And you're 
she actually got one open in front of her, folks. There's a Tanakh on the table. Uh, there's actually a Torah. But then how we interpret it and think about it and apply it, that is where our creativity and individuality can get expressed. Yes, exactly. Even though there's going to be tension there as we perhaps want different things, want to emphasize different things. You might think, actually, you should be in charge of giving out those instructions. Maybe I think I should be in charge of those instructions. You should definitely be in charge of those no, instructions. No, absolutely not true. But uh, there's going to be tension at the same time. It's not necessarily going to be smooth, like a family, as we have seen, uh, like a nation. You can understand the attraction of wanting to keep everything locked down. Everybody in their place, everybody given their instructions, and there's a certain safety in that. But I hear you saying there's also a certain loss that's going to happen in terms of our creativity. Even Tommy Shelby couldn't keep everybody in their place, and that's what made the series interesting. You know, there's a lot of violence in that show, as I recall. I close my eyes at those parts. I would figure. You did not seem like a person who would be able to watch any of that kind of stuff. Really not. On screen. So just to sort of close, as you look at your students and you look at Pardes and you look at the Jewish world, a lot of people just see all the tension and dissension and disagreement and lack of unity. But it sounds like you also take a certain amount of hope in a lot of these conversations or machlokot disagreements that are going on. Yeah. <laughs> when, uh, when I was asked, I don't know, two years ago, what do I think the tagline for our Pardes logo should be? It ended up being one thing. But the thing that I suggested, which was not that, was Torah for everyone. And I really believe in that wholeheartedly. I think that's our mission. Anybody who wants agency over Torah learning, anybody who wants the skills, come and take it. Any type of Jew who feels that they want to do that should do that, and we're inviting them in. To me, that's so important. It's not just for one kind of person. And let them all learn together and have that tension of one person being one way and another person being another. That's what's enriching, but it belongs to everyone, just like Yaakov maybe was saying by crossing his arms. That the blessings belong to everybody. Mm -hmm. It's not predetermined. Right. Even though I know the risks, I understand the dangers, I understand how unsettling that could be, that is the path. That's his gift, you're saying, to his children, which they have to work out now moving forward. Yeah, yadati bini, yadati. Okay, well, I think he knew, and it sounds like you knew. And now that you share with us, we now know a little bit more than we started. So, Aviva, I want to thank you very much. You've given us a pretty strong mission because implied here is we also have to do the work. If we're going to buy into this system where we all have our place and all of our talents, all have what we can contribute, then we have to work at it. We can't just accept somebody else's path and write that down. We actually have to do the work and figure out for ourselves. So the tagline maybe is Torah for everyone, and you're going to have to work at it. But that probably wouldn't sell as well. It's probably not so long. That's why I'm not in marketing. But uh, I think that that's an important message, that it's not just simply everyone's wonderful as they are. It's everyone has the potential to contribute something wonderful. Yes. And they have to work at it. Get to work. Yes, I love working hard. Okay, you heard it, everyone. There has been two suggestions made. Number one, watch Peaky Blinders. And the more important one is get to work on your Torah. We need your Torah and you need your Torah. Jump in there, even though there's going to be dissension and disagreement and different perspectives. And it's hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. That's ultimately what we need to do. So uh, thank you very much, Aviva. 
Thank you. And again, I want to reiterate our prayers and hopes that by the time you're listening to this, the hostages will be freed and there will be peace. And God willing, things will be looking so much better. And on that note, I want to wish all of you a wonderful Shabbat with you, your friends, and your family. And please listen to the next one. Thank you, Aviva. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.